Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done 630-something of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to uh, see previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there are PayPal buttons on the website, and there's also a page about other ways to donate other than PayPal. My guest today is William Peters. William is the founder of the Shared Crossing Project, whose mission is to positively transform relationships to death and dying through education and raising awareness about shared crossings and their healing benefits. As the director of the Shared Crossing Research Initiative, William and his team collect and study extraordinary end-of-life experiences, shared crossings. William is a global leader in shared death studies and end-of-life phenomena. He has developed methods to facilitate the shared death experience and to assist experiencers in meaningfully integrating their experiences. William is a psychotherapist at the Family Therapy Institute of Santa Barbara, where he specializes in end-of-life counseling as a means toward psycho-spiritual evolution. He served as a hospice worker with Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. His work is informed by his two NDEs, near-death experiences, and a variety of shared crossings. William has presented at the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine's annual conference. His research has been published in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine and is approved and awaiting publication in Omega Journal of Death Studies. William's book, entitled At Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better, was published recently by Simon and Schuster. I just listened to the whole book, loved it. And he has a couple of websites, which I'll link to from his page on batgap.com, williampeters.info, and sharedcrossing.com. So welcome, William. Thanks, Rick. Really good to be here. Good to have you. I really enjoyed your book. It was really sweet because it was all about shared crossings and how people tuned into the experience that their loved ones are having as they died or had died. But what also really hit me was just the love people have for each other, how precious life is and how how much a mother loves a son or a husband loves a wife or all these different relationships that we have. And that came through really beautifully in the book, I thought. Yeah, thank you. That is kind of the main teaching in my research and my working with people who've had these experiences is that there's this bond that... Uh, that stretches uh, from this life to the beyond through death. And as you said, it's, it's about love at the end of the day. I mean, it sounds trite, but at this moment uh, when one of our loved ones is leaving us, uh, that is the, the bridge that can connect us. And that's how these shared death experiences tend to happen. That's, that, that's the working hypothesis is that there is this bond, this relational bond uh, imbued with love that, serve to make these possible. I say that tentatively because there are those of us who are adepts at this. That is to say that I can be at a bedside and there are many others who can just attune to that that field, if you will, that opening 
of the veil and and observe the phenomena that we'll discuss in the shared death experience. And as you indicated in the bio that I just read, and as I often say on this show, there is definitely a spiritual relevance to this whole topic. And of course, most spiritual traditions, if not all, address it. You have the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and you have what the Hindus say about dying, and the Christians say about it. I mean, anybody who's interested in spirituality has some idea or some orientation to this whole topic, and it usually involves the fact that you don't die. I heard an interesting quote last night from, I was listening to a talk by Deepak Chopra, and he said, life is not the opposite of death. Birth is the opposite of death. Life is a continuum along which births and deaths continue to happen. Yeah, well said. And, you know, that's why those of us in, the, in this field have trouble with the term afterlife, because there really is no afterlife. And as Deepak articulated well, life is constant. It continues through human death. And the Tibetans had this down in their uh, Dhammapada, which was the Tibetan Book of the Dead, really talking about different uh, bardos that we go into. These are these transitional states. In fact, if you take that perspective, then a human life itself is a kind of bardo state. Yeah. It's it's just a, f- a phase. It's a, a segment of our life. And we, most people would think of it as their entire life. I was born in 1949. I died in such and such, or I will die in such and such. But really, those are just milestones on a much longer journey. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, this is certainly what the Eastern spiritual traditions assert. Not so in the modern world where fiscalism and scientific materialism are the you know, the dominant paradigm, especially in medical sciences. And that's where you see a lot of the, I think the the trouble, the conflict at end of life is that that paradigm, which is clinging to this life and engaging in ways that want to extend life. That's what, we have a wonderful medical system. I want to be clear about that. And they can really do a great deal of curing and healing and diagnosing. But at the time of death, it gives people a great deal of peace if they know that that they're going to die in this human life, but they will go on. And yeah, so there you see a a struggle with Eastern spirituality and the modern medical system right there. Yeah, the Gita uses the analogy of dying as being like, and and being reborn as like a change of clothing or something. You know, imagine if you went through your whole day thinking, oh my God, tonight I'm going to have to take off my clothing and put on my pajamas. Oh, that's tragic. (laughs) I mean, it would seem absurd. We don't want to trivialize death or be glib about it. I mean, obviously, it hits people pretty hard. But at the same time, like you just said, in the predominant Western paradigm, death is curtains. You know, that's the end, kaput. And if you really buy into that, then it seems to me your entire life, and especially later in your life as death approaches, is adversely influenced by that perspective, I would guess. I mean, I don't have that perspective, but there'd be a whole lot of unnecessary wailing and gnashing of teeth. Well, and I think you're speaking to a truth that we see at the end of life. I mean, I'm an end of life counselor. I'm a psychotherapist who specializes in grief and bereavement. And with the most disappointing and, and sad and unnecessary experience I have as a counselor with my bereaved patients is how traumatizing 
the death of their loved one was for them to observe. The over-medicalization, you know, you see this a lot with persons with cancer, and that is this continued effort to treat, even though the literature suggests that these chemo treatments and radiation are not going to extend life significantly, but they will really impair quality of life. So that's a real hard one as a therapist working with you know, surviving loved ones, because they're like, I couldn't get them to stop. And all this has its root in this sense that we have to keep life, human life alive for as long as possible. That leads to all these extraordinary means, which come from a good place. If that's your paradigm, hey, more of life is better. But, you know, but as we're talking about here, there's a whole nother reality and one that the shared death experience and a lot of spiritual experiences speak to the sense that human death is just a transition. You probably know the statistics about the percentage of medical expenditure in the course of a person's life and how the preponderance of it is towards the very end. And it's being spent on maintaining a life that the person really isn't enjoying. They could be bedridden and miserable and in pain and all kinds of stuff. And we're sort of dragging it out for an extra month or two. And then we have these astronomical national healthcare costs that we don't know how to pay for and, you know, that we don't have any kind of universal means of paying for. Talk about a paradigm having ramifications as it ripples through all the different areas it impacts. This is a big one, the, the paradigm that when you die, you're done. It has huge economic and social and emotional consequences. I couldn't agree more. Yes, and you're absolutely spot on with those statistics. You know, in the last six months of human life, Medicaid just pours out. I don't have the exact numbers, but it's a significant amount of funds that, as you indicated as well, do not yield any quality of life and often not an extension of any life at all. And then the funny thing is people who have NDEs, let's say, when they cross over, albeit temporarily, it's like, whoop-de-doo, I don't want to go back. This is wonderful. And you talk to people who have had NDEs and have come back, and they say, well, I'm looking forward to dying. You know, Not that I'm in a big hurry, but when it happens, it'll be great. So all this angst and expenditure and suffering and everything, we're essentially postponing a kind of a glorious transition. Yes. And you know, I'm a near-death experiencer myself, having had two of them. And I can speak to what all of us as these as experiencers say, and that is that our fear of death is largely alleviated. Many of us, not me, but many near-death experiencers, when they're in that space, do not want to return, but are often told, it's not your time, you need to return. So yes, if this wisdom could be circulated through our medical systems and larger culture, then I think we'd have a much better relationship with end of life. Uh, and the other thing is that we're missing so much in terms of the quality of heartfelt connection and dialogue, the, the opportunity at the end of the life to be with your loved ones and say, thank you for having shared this life with me. I Are love we missing that? Because regardless of whether there's life after death or not, people can have those conversations. So how, they, how do you mean we're missing that? They can, but that requires typically a commitment to express to your medical care providers that you don't want to 
continue extraordinary means to stay here. Now, this is the purpose of hospice and palliative care is that you can basically say, I just want to be comfortable. I don't want to put any more effort medically into extending my life. And then you have that chapter in your life, which is, you know, can be from days to weeks, hopefully months, if you're wise about it, that you can be with your loved ones, you can gather up and you can have those conversations. But the statistics are clear. Far too many people are going on hospice way too late. So when you go on hospice late, if you're in a hospital, you are basically trying to extend your life in some way or do some sort of curative interventions. In a hospital, it is really difficult to have that type of connection. You know, there's statistics that say that, you know, I think two thirds of all North Americans would like to die at home. And yet about a third, maybe a little more, it's increasing, thankfully, are unable to have that end of life setting. They're in a medical setting and that's not where they want to be. And yeah, so this is all part of this transformation that thankfully we are in as a culture. We are waking up to the value of hospice and palliative care at the end of life, but we still don't have these spiritual teachings that, that you know, my research and others uh, suggest are not only possible, they're probable if you prepare. So if you know you're going to die, which we all do, that seems like, can you believe I just said that? If you know you're going to die, we should get prepared for it. We all make financial plans. You don't start making a financial plan late in life. You kind of do it when you have the opportunity to earn some income and start planning. Well, end of life and death and dying requires the same preparation. And yeah, you can do advanced care directives and such. But, you know, my work focuses on how do you prepare spiritually, psychologically, emotionally for this great event that is human death and know that if you do so, there are these amazing experiences, mostly mystical, transcendental, that are healing not just for the dying, but for the loved ones and caregivers. We'll talk about that a lot today, but there's another one, which is the legal one, and you just alluded to it. Let's say that Irene and I were to somehow suddenly have a stroke or something and be unable to communicate. If we hadn't made some legal arrangement that we didn't want heroic efforts to keep us on life support or something like that, would we be legally obligated? Would the other one of us have the option to say, pull the plug? Or would doctors be legally bound to try to keep us alive if we hadn't made a legal thing? So the legalities of that, technically, they're supposed to be a healthcare agent. And the healthcare agent has full power to determine the medical care in this case with your wife. And if you, if she had that document signed and there were the, your specifications, your preferences for what you wanted, then she could deliver those. But if nothing is signed. Honestly, it's a little bit state by state. Typically a partner, if you're married, that person can determine, make those decisions. Typically, that's where it goes. What happens, though, is that if you go into a, you know, a trauma situation, a medical crisis, the hospital will do what it knows how to do. That's prolonged human life. So prolonging human life is what they're going to do. So you'll have to really cut that off and interrupt. You know? And there's other documents. There's, a, you know, there's what we call a pulsed physician's orders for life-sustaining treatments. That's something that everybody should have. 
And you should carry that you know, in your car or with you or give it to your local hospital because that is the patient stating exactly what they want when they're in a life-threatening situation. Okay, good. So let's talk about you a little bit. Your first uh, near-death experience, is that a good place to start? I'd say that's a pretty good place to start because I think that's put me on the trajectory to do the work I'm doing now. Yeah. All right, so describe that. 17 years old, growing up in you know, San Francisco Bay Area, and went up skiing with some friends at Lake Tahoe, nearby skiing area, skiing down the mountain, typical day, catch an edge, get catapulted into the air, and take a really hard fall and basically fracture my spine. Low back injury, and immediately I'm catapulted out of my body. And the next thing I see after some kind of darkness, I have an observing self there, if you will, but I'm just seeing darkness and no sensation. And then the lights come on and I'm moving away from my body, see my body on the ski slope, then see beautiful Lake Tahoe, then see San Francisco Bay, Colorado Rockies. I mean, I can see it like a movie right now. It's not a movie that ever goes away. And then I have a satellite view of planet Earth and I'm very much at peace. I mean, this is comfortable, enthralling. At the same time, this is going on. I'm seeing a review of my life in uh, snippets, video snippets. And I'm getting a teaching on karma, quite frankly. And the karma is that every thought, every action, every spoken word impacts those around me. And so I'm seeing scenes as a child, you know, pushing somebody off their bike and then him crying and then going into his house and crying and his mother getting upset and then his mother getting upset with the husband. So as you see the ripple effects of my actions, eventually at this point, I'm fully in this beautiful solar system. I mean, the galaxy is gorgeous, hyper alive, brilliant colors. You went out to the point of seeing the whole galaxy. Yeah. I don't know if I saw the whole galaxy. I could see as much of the galaxy as I could see. It was clear to me that it was infinite on all sides. I couldn't see the ends, but it was beautiful. It didn't look a whole lot different than the way it looked when looking into the stars at night, except you're in it. You're ensconced with it all around you. And then there's this tunnel that I went in and the tunnel was kind of translucent and ribbed. So I could still see the solar system outside the tunnel, but everything changed when I saw the light. When I saw the light, then I realized I'm dying. And I'd been here hundreds, if not a thousand times. It was like, oh. I'm here again. And I'm like, oh. By here, you mean on earth or you mean into this cosmic? No, I'm I'm at the end of a human life. I'm in this space that comes after a human life. This is the end of the human life. I'm now in another dimension. And I had not done what I had somehow thought I was going to do in this human life. And I immediately started pleading. You know, I grew up Catholic. So when I looked at that light. To me, it was God. I started pleading directly with God. God, don't let me die. God, I didn't complete what I incarnated to do in this life. So I slowly went into that light, very warm, very comforting, very loving, and I'm enjoying it there. But I have in the back of my, not in the front of my mind, really, I have to go back. And so, you know, after some time in that light, not, you know, not fully in the light, just on the edge of the light, the light is big and voluminous and and lovely, I feel a pushback from that light. And I start moving away from the light, heading back to the direction of earth. 
and I hear telepathically, make something of your life. And with that, I just reversed the trip. You know, they talk about this silver cord, this astral line, if you will, that you travel. I didn't, I had a sense, I didn't see that, but I was wondering, well, how am I going to get back in my body? And it was, there was this kind of inherent knowing I wasn't doing anything. I was just returning and getting pulled almost like a zip line. And it had a frequency sound to it. And then I saw planet earth. And then I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to get to, you know, Squaw Valley, USA, where I was skiing. And eventually I got there, landed in my body. And it was like a thud. I could feel the coldness of the snow on my back, but I had no feeling in my body. And I pled, I go, God, don't let me be paralyzed. And then I felt the energy, you know, the vitality come across my body, similar to like being under a, uh, a warm shower, just kind of rippled across. And I said, thank you. But as I've reflected later, I wish I had asked as if I had the power to receive what I was asking for. Please don't let me live in chronic pain. Because the fracture in my back completely debilitated me. Um, I was I lost my ability to be athletic. To you know, I never really ran again, and couldn't sit for many years of my life, and had trouble walking. You know, this is now forty-two years ago. I'm significantly better, but it was a tough go. How did you get off the mount? Did they bring you down on a toboggan? This is either stupidity of a 17 year old or just skied down. I skied down. And I heard you say later that if something had happened one thirty second of an inch more, yeah. it would have damaged your spinal cord and you would have been paralyzed. And somehow you skied down and didn't do that. Yeah. It was a painful ski ride down, but at 17 years old, I wasn't going to tell any of my friends that I was in pain. That wasn't cool. I did stop skiing after that. So did you ever see one of those Powers of Ten movies where it zooms out and out and out and out and out and then zooms back in? Did you ever see one of those? No, I haven't. No. Oh, you should search for it on YouTube. There's a number of different versions of it, but they zoom out by Powers of Ten. So it speeds up and up and up and up. And then they zoom back in and then they zoom in by Powers of Ten. So you end up going down to the quark level, you know, subatomic level. And, uh, and it just kind of shows you the span of creation and humans are actually kind of in the middle in terms of the relative size of things. So anyway, those are well worth watching. I I watched one of those one time when I was teaching a meditation class, I played it for the class and I literally couldn't talk afterwards because I couldn't zoom in again. I had zoomed out with the movie and I was like, (laughs) I couldn't kind of get back and into focus again. It was so powerful. Anyway, so that's my NDE. That's my first NDE. That's your first one. Yeah, and I didn't think about that experience at all. I had no context. I say no context. It's just the NDE wasn't around me. I didn't hear anything about these experiences. Even though it was 1979 and Raymond Moody had written his book in 1976, Life After Life, really bringing the near-death experience to the general public. And it was out everywhere, but not in my culture. I mean, I was you know, you know in high school and then going to college and just wasn't aware of it. And I so you didn't tell your friends or anybody that you'd had this? No, thing? no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, here's the thing, Rick. I don't even think I remembered it. It almost for a long time lived as a state specific experience. 
And while I was in the human realm, as we are most of the time, I just didn't even think about it. The first time I really thought about it was when I was channel surfing. I think it must have been my mid-20s, which would have been, you know, I was 17 when I had it, maybe, maybe early 20s. And I was at my parents' house and I was channel surfing. And I heard somebody say, traveling down a rib tunnel. That's the words I, I kind of channel surfed through that. Then I, it got me traveling down a rib tunnel. And there were some graphics in the background as well that were a little bit helpful. So I went back to it and then I listened to this person tell his experience, which was very similar to mine. He had then approaches the light. He goes into the light and my body just lights up energetically. And I just go, whoa, I had that. I didn't know anybody had had that. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. I did then go up and share it with a family member because there's only one other family member in the house. And I was excited, but this person didn't know what to make of it and just kind of said, do you want to have dinner? A kind person, but kind of killed the conversation. And that experience went back in me and I did Mm -hmm. not think about it. But the experience really did affect me in ways that I was unaware of at that time and have later come back and said, oh, yeah. Now, the chronic pain was something for sure. And that was altering me a great deal, like trying to make sense of this existentially. And in my Christian Catholic faith, like, you know, what kind of a God would allow this to happen? You know, a little bit narcissistic, but when you're that age, those are the types of questions you are asking when your friends are out having fun and doing sports and, and I'm in pain, you know, and I can't really do that. So I had an experience that I want to share. And that is when I was, I guess, 22 or so went on a trip to Europe, which we frequently did between our you know, our summers between in college years. So I went with some friends and was in Greece and we wanted to go up behind the Iron Curtain up to Budapest. But there was this spot on the map, which is Yugoslavia, where there were no, our our let's go Europe, which was the travel guide of that era, did not have any information about traveling through Yugoslavia, but we decided to do it. So we went through Yugoslavia, took an overnight bus, and I awakened after a whole night in the bus. And when I pulled the blinds back on the bus, what I looked out and saw was Muslim women with burqas on. All I could see was their eyes and their hands extended. And this caught me, you know, you wake up in that kind of hypnagogic state where you're just coming to. And and what I felt in these women's eyes and in their expressions was desperation. And they were hungry And that really touched my heart because they were touching something in me. We were connecting at a place where I was desperate to. I was desperately in pain and in search of meaning in my life and understanding. It was a bridge that I just somehow, I didn't have the words for it. I may not even have the words for it now, but I do know after that encounter, I literally was staring at these women who were begging And I was weeping because I was feeling something in them that I hadn't owned in my own self. And so that was profound. And in that moment, I made a commitment to myself to live and work with underprivileged people. It was my own 22-year-old simple-minded way of saying, I need to be around these people. I need to learn something from them. Probably wouldn't have said it that way the way I'm now. But as it turned out, I went to work in Central and South America after graduating. 
and worked with an organization, the Jesuit International Volunteer Corps, which was, you know, it's a liberal arm of the Catholic Church, really doing what they call liberation theology work, which was more of a political movement, working in human rights and working with the underprivileged. Not a whole lot of religion proselytizing from the people I was working with, but it did put me in touch with refugees and oppressed people, starvation, and a lot of pain and suffering. And I learned a lot there. And I did see a great deal of death and dying in a certain way. That moved me a great deal too. And I'm sharing this because it was the near-death experience, I think, that set me on this course. And later I would come back from Central and South America and work, take my first job in the Tenderloin of San Francisco. They hired me because I was fluent in Spanish and there was a rush of immigration from Central and South America. And so being fluent in Spanish, they hired me. But what happened really was that what we now call the AIDS epidemic happened. And when that happened, I found myself working directly with a lot of young, not just young, a lot of gay men of all ages, actually, who had contracted the HIV virus. At this time, we knew very little about the virus, whether it was contagious or what have you. But I felt comfortable and drawn to working with these men. And I was hearing about some amazing spiritual experiences. One I'll share with you now, one I talk about in the book quite a bit. This is the experience where Brad, who's kind of a, I want to say he's almost like a death midwife or a psychopomp, somebody who really knows how to be with the dying and help the dying go from this life to the next. He probably wouldn't describe himself this way, but when he was talking about his many experiences, now that I've studied the field, I go, oh my gosh, he was kind of a psychopomp because he was living in a homeless encampment with primarily gay men. And they were just ushering each other out of this life because they were just dying one by one. I mean, it was a gruesome situation. I was providing food for them as well as others. I wasn't the only provider of food, but I was also helping with emotional and spiritual support. So on one morning, Brad comes in to my office and he is just beleaguered and wiped out. I go, Brad, what's happened? And he said, Randy died last night. I said, Randy? I said, well, I'm sorry. I know he has been struggling for some time. I said, but I'm so sorry. And he says, yeah, I'm sorry too, but it was so beautiful. And when he said it was so beautiful, I said, beautiful, tell me more. He said, well, when Randy died, we, the community was surrounding him and he rose out of his body up a cylinder of light. And at the top of that light above us, he looked at all of us and he was young and radiant and happy. And he thanked all of us for caring for him. And then he traveled further up that light and disappeared. Did everybody see that or just Brad? I actually went the next day. I said, can I come and talk to your, your brothers is what he called them. And he said, sure. So I went down to the encampment. I was trying to get that sense that you're asking me right now, Rick. And two of them, Brad introduced me. They're a little bit cautious about this guy who's coming down to visit. And two of them said, yes, there was amazing light. And we saw Randy go. I said, could you share a little bit more? And they'd say, well, it's kind of private. And so I got that, but I I had a good relationship with Brad 
And so Brad shared quite a bit with me about the experience and, and the impact. So just out of curiosity, when you say encampment, was it like under a highway overpass or something like that? Or was this a more adequate setup yeah. for these people? So in this time, it was in an area called South of Market in San Francisco, which like I said, South of Market is really nice now. But at this time, it was not a good part of town. It was a burned out building and they were on like the second floor. It wasn't a finished building at all. It was like the building was somewhat abandoned actually. And I walked up the stairs of concrete and there they were. They had tents and sleeping bags and there's a kind of a fire pit in the middle. I would say there was about a dozen to, to 20, but most of them were out during the day, which is kind of a typical behavior for homeless populations. They go out, they get food, they get their supplies, they get the things they need and they come back at night. So, yeah. And they were just dying in there or were they finally getting into hospitals or something towards well, the end? Well, this is a good question because I think a lot of them, in this case, Randy died right there. And I asked Brad about that. And he said, sometimes they die here and we prefer that. Sometimes they go to the hospital. But keep in mind, AIDS at this time, we're talking very late 80s, early 90s. It was scary. It wasn't a pleasant experience to go to a hospital if you had AIDS. They put you in a you know, quarantine room. There was hazmat suits, the whole thing. And I respect this. You know, We talked earlier about what is a good death and surrounded by loved ones. I think these communities got very comfortable in a certain way, as comfortable as you can with death and dying. And they became very proficient at supporting the dying. Now, I will say, I also knew that they did have means to treat pain. I was aware of that. I didn't know the specifics of it, but they certainly, there was a market they were tapping into. I didn't know exactly what it was, but <laughs> Brad did tell me, yeah, we have ways to treat pain. I mean, there are very much autonomous communities in a certain way. So this kind of lit your fire in terms of looking more into this phenomenon of shared death experiences. Yes. I heard about them through Brad and others, but there was no language for this type of a experience. I will say that my grandmother on my paternal side died a few years later. And when I was with her, she was doing something we now know in the literature. It's well identified as having pre-death visions or visitations. I walked in and her hands were extended and she was having a very, you know, she's gesticulating an energetic conversation. This was a woman who was 93 years old who was mostly unresponsive the other times I visited her. But on this occasion, she was actively engaged in a conversation. And I took down names and took notes on and names of who she was talking to. And these were all predeceased relatives of hers and friends. I talked to my uncle who was, you know, at that time, the elder in the family who could help me go back and make sense of this. And he said, oh, my God, these are people from her life 40 years ago. So that was something that got my attention. And soon after that, I signed up for Zen Hospice. Now I'm leaving out one key event. And that is after I was, had the experience with Brad as a social worker, I then had another experience, my second near-death experience. And that was, uh, I had contracted a rare blood disease called idiopathic thromocytopenia. It's basically a low platelet condition, and it can be fatal. You can drown in your blood, essentially. 
So I was in the ICU. I went into the ER room. They put a fall alert on me and I fell asleep apparently because the next thing I remembered was I was floating above the ICU and I was listening to conversation. Now, this is a really important realization, one that I go back to frequently trying to figure out what was my consciousness like? And I realize now that I was a free-floating consciousness that did not know that I was connected to anybody in that ICU. I didn't have an identity as William at all. So for a while, I surveyed the scene. I mean, I was listening to nurses talk and listening to the janitors or watching the janitors do their late night cleanup. This was like two o'clock in the morning to like five o'clock, wee hours in the morning. But not just in your own room, but in other rooms down the hall and stuff you were tuning into? Absolutely. 10th floor of Kaiser Hospital, Oakland. That's where the ICU was. And, And I was moving about. I was kind of interested in kind of the elevator. I was just watching all this. At one point, I was over the top of the nurses, and they were talking about their cases. They talked about one person in bed one who was an elderly man with had some sort of hemorrhage that was likely not going to make it through the night. Then they go to this guy in bed three. He's a real young guy. He's in great health. Doesn't seem to have that many issues. Doesn't really have much of a medical history at Kaiser at all. He's got idiopathic thrombocytopenia, this crashing platelet condition. And so I go over and look at that guy, and I realize that's me. That's when I make the connection. That's me. And then I go back to surveying the floor, and I don't even come back to my room until the doctor is tapping on me, saying, Mr. Peters, Mr. Peters. And I realize, oh, he's talking to me. And I'm looking down at this doctor from above. And then I have this question. Do I answer? Can I answer? So I'm sitting with that. If if I answer, will I go into my body or how will this all work? I decide to answer. And as I'm answering, I feel the energy come back into my body. Very similar to the experience I had on the ski slope. So this is the re-embodiment. And as I'm doing that, I open my eyes, start talking. My voice comes out of my voice box. I hear it. Everything's new now. I'm hearing much more vibrantly in a certain way, I open my eyes. And now I'm looking at the doctor into his eyes and face, which is a significant contrast to observing things from above. So that is, you know, a near-death experience, an out-of-body experience, very well known, but it's very different than my other near-death experience because I'm in this, I'm really close. I'm not in, I'm not, I haven't left this earth realm, if you will. So that's a very important experience. All these lead to my fascination curiosity about death and dying, end up in Zen hospice at Laguna Honda Hospital in San Francisco, a large, old public hospital serving the the mostly indigent populations with an open ward with 24 beds just spread out with only curtains. It gave me an opportunity, as with all the volunteers there at Zen hospice, to be very close to people as they're dying. And there was a lot of transitioning going on. And so I had, you know, the one experience I referred to in the book is with Ron and Ron has been largely unresponsive for the last few weeks. And I've been reading to him every day in the afternoon when I'm there, because we know in hospice that hearing is the last sense 
door to go. So you assume that they're hearing you. As I'm reading to Ron, I pop out of my body and I'm suspended above my body next to Ron's. I'm looking down at my body and I'm still reading. This is, as far as I can tell, this is a parallel universe. I do not stop reading. I see Ron there in his bed, but there's Ron next to me on the right. And he's happy. He's almost elated. It's almost like he's invited me in. And he says, check this out. And as if to say, you know, this is where I've been hanging out. So this is very similar in terms of location and consciousness, if you will, it's my second near-death experience that I had in the ICU. So very familiar to me. And that's how I really got into this, Rick. And now we can talk more about the specifics of our study. But that's my life story up to this point. Are you or have you been into Zen or the name of this thing was just the Zen hospice and you happen to be involved in it? As a result of living with chronic pain, I was looking for spiritual practices any kind of practice, but it became spiritual practice to help me cope with my pain. And I had been at Spirit Rock Meditation Center with in the early days. You know, this is before the whole center was there. There was just these, uh, you know, mobile units, if you will. So I was there occasionally. I mean, Jack Cornfield would teach on Monday nights. And so I had this practice already. And I had been doing longer retreats at that time, you know, not the super long, but 10 day retreats to really learn the practice. And I had a really strong practice at that time, more than I have now. I was probably an hour and a half every day. And so I was into the Buddhist way of being with life, that kind of authentic presence and sensing and feeling, not just myself and hospice. I was really drawn to how do you sense and feel the experience of another so that you can truly attend to their needs. Do you think that having a near-death out-of-body type experience makes one more inclined or likely to have more of them? Like, you know how if you dig up some ground and then put the dirt back and then dig it up again later, it, it digs up a lot easier than a place where which has never been dug? I definitely think that once you've had a near-death experience, not that you're going to have another one, but you can have them more easily. So if you're in a traumatic situation, you've already left your body once. If your body is under stress or trauma, you already know how to leave it. So I think that may contribute to the ease in which I had during the idiopathic thrombocytopenia in the ICU, my second near-death experience. I kind of think it was easy for me to leave my body. So I did. It was more comfortable. It was a wonderful experience. I've been there before. We do see, we haven't gotten there yet, but for the shared death experience, which is analogous to, if not identical to, in terms of capacity of phenomena to the near-death experience, that 41% of the people in our study who've had the shared death experience will have more than one. How many would you say you've had now since you've been putting your focus on this? Well, I mean, you see me rolling my eyes back. I probably had a couple dozen. Maybe I should give a definition for the shared death experience just so that we know what we're talking about. Yeah, sure. A shared death experience occurs when somebody is dying and a loved one, caregiver, and sometimes just a bystander reports that they shared in the journey from this human body, human life, into a benevolent afterlife, another dimension, which is almost always referred to as the afterlife. And so 
I don't like the term as we've talked about, but that's what, that's what the research reveals to us. That's how it's referred to. In these experiences, there are a few motifs. One is the sense of journey. The experiencer says, the dying was on a journey and I got to hitch a ride or take a peek at it or witness some of the phenomena there. The other thing, and we've talked about this at the very beginning of this interview, was the bond, the relationship is so key. Uh, And that doesn't mean you have to be super close over a long period of time. A lot of hospice workers will have these experiences because the dying may feel very connected to that hospice care provider, oftentimes because their family may either not be there, may not be able to comfort them in a way that makes sense. They may be holding them here in a certain way, whereas a hospice worker, if they're doing their job, is giving them unconditional love. So that's a different bond that can develop very quickly. So yeah, those are kind of the the features we see. And then, like I said, the third kind of substrate of the SDE is that's the phenomena are very similar to the near-death experience. So when we say that, the most dominant feature in the shared death experience is seeing the dying. You actually see the dying in this transition. That happens in, I think, 51% of our cases. You also see, 16% of our cases, see an elevated spirit being defined either as an angel or... um, avatar or a spirit guide, something like that. You know, I'll talk more about this too. There's also a particular type of elevated spirit being that I've coined the term, the conductor. It seems like this force, if you will, is managing the transition. And so the third type of being you'll see in, in this afterlife space is a deceased loved one. So if it's your mother dying, you might see her sister or your grandmother, her mother. So other loved ones appear. And the seeing of the beings is really affirming and encouraging and uplifting for the shared death experiencer because they realize that their loved one is being cared for. There's this welcoming party there to greet them and they're getting the sense of, oh my gosh, I'm losing my beloved, but look who's receiving them on the other side. You know, there's these elevated spirit beings and deceased relatives, and it's all well-organized and they're going towards the light. We see the light similar to the NDE, the light is there and the journey is heading towards that light. Yeah, there's a number of things in there that are really cool. I mean, the well-organized part is interesting. It's not some kind of haphazard Grand Central Station kind of scene on the other side. There are people who are specifically qualified to meet you and to guide you and uh, who show up at the right time. And another point that comes to mind, as you said, all that is that the shared death experience, you don't have to be in the room to have it. Like I told you earlier before this interview about an experience I had when my father died and that he was in Denver and I was in Iowa, but something happened. You could be on the other side of the world and, and you have this experience all of a sudden. Yeah, so you identified something that's in our research, too, that was quite surprising, and that is that the shared death experience can happen at bedside or it can happen remotely. And I knew of these remote experiences. What I didn't know is that in our research, two-thirds of these experiences would be remote. So that is both encouraging if we can't get to the bedside of our loved ones, 
But it also says a lot about what's going on here, because a lot of times these remote experiencers, in most of these cases, they may not even know that their loved ones die. I didn't. I would love for you, Rick, to share your experience if you feel comfortable, because most of what's so powerful about it is it comes out of the blue. And so you're not even thinking about it. So this notion that you may be making it up or that you may be having grief hallucinations or some sort of stress-induced psychoses, which is what a lot of the folks in the scientific medical community attribute both the near-death and the share-death to. So share your case, see when we can unpack it a bit. Well, my father was a sensitive guy. He was a professional artist. World War II hit him really hard. He had what would now be understood as rather severe PTSD. He had epilepsy. He was an alcoholic. And uh, he was taking his epilepsy drugs along with alcohol and, you know, really kind of suffering. But at the same time, still a very creative, sensitive guy. He had an organic garden in the 1950s, and he was always doing sculpture and painting, all kinds of stuff. And good things, too. I don't want to just paint a bleak picture of him. He took me Boy Scout camping trips, skiing, all kinds of wonderful things. But he was suffering. So I learned to meditate in 1968, and he died somewhere in the late 70s. So I must have been meditating for 11 or 12 years or something. I was used to having blissful experiences sometimes. But one day, I was like almost in ecstasy. It was like this amazingly blissful day. I thought, what is going on? Why am I feeling this way? Then sometime maybe 12 hours after he had died, I got the word that he had died quite suddenly. And I thought, huh. And my impression was that I was somehow partaking in the the freedom and bliss that he was experiencing, having been released from this kind of tortured life that he had been living. Because many people do report that when they cross over, it's wonderful compared to what they had been experiencing. So that's just my theory about it. But that that was my interpretation of why I, I was feeling that way. Beautiful. Thank you. I mean, you've now read my book mm-hmm. about the shared death experience. Do you think it fits one of the shared death types that I brought up? Yeah. You can probably remember more clearly than I a particular case that it might align with. It makes sense to me. I mean, obviously, a skeptic could attribute all kinds of other reasons to it and think I was foolish for drawing this connection. But that's just the way it felt to me. So for where I sit as a researcher in this, that sounds like a remote shared death experience. And those feelings you had of euphoria and peace those are what we have reported in these remote experiences. You know, oftentimes it begins with a bit of nausea or an upset and it's, Oh, something's going on here. I know, you know, what's going on. And they, and the, the experiencer will say, they don't know where this comes from initially. And then all of a sudden they'll start feeling better and they may have some sort of reminder, they may be visited in a certain way by this person. They may see their face or they may smell them, or they may have something that happens in their sensory field that lets them know that this person, something's happening to them. They, they probably don't know that they've died, but they do know it has something to do with this person. In some cases, they don't. They don't yeah, know I, what I mean, I didn't even think yeah. of my father the whole day. I yeah. was just having this blissful day and it could have been something else, you know, but that was just my interpretation. And yeah. I had a similar thing when my mother died, although I was right there in the hospital, but she also had a difficult life in many ways. It just kind of jibes with so many stories I've heard that when people die in general, it's a big release for them. And it, it's a blissful, profound thing rather than a miserable thing in any way. 
That's what we have learned as well, is that these sublime feelings that we hear all the time, ineffable, those feelings I don't have the words for. Did you have a sense of heightened consciousness of any kind? Oh, yeah. Okay. There. I mean, it was, when I say blissful, generally if a person's been meditating, they have a blissful thing. It's not just, it's not a sensual experience. Yeah. It's more like an inner bliss that's a heightened consciousness. Yeah, because we often hear in our research about, I think it's about, give or take, around 38% of the people will say that they had this sense of unity consciousness, a sense of connection with everything, a sense of knowing the greater design of the universe, if you will. Like they finally understood what the purpose of their life was or human life. <laughs> I love it when people say, I wish I could go back there because I have more questions now that I wish I'd asked up there, which is so honest. Because when you're in that state, and I've been there, the questions we have are answered and understandable. And the veil, if you will, is ripped away. And you see clearly what when we're in this human body and form, it's there's a lot more that's not available to us. So Yeah. Well, in a way, you can go back there because a regular spiritual practice can develop this kind of condition as an abiding state rather than just a, an occasional flash. Yeah, we do have... Most of these experiencers identify as spiritual, not religious, and they definitely take on more practices, maybe not to go back to that state, but they just think it's important to bring this type of way of being in the world, a more spiritual way of being more attuned with the world around them, more living in love and more in healthy relationship with themselves and others. So we definitely see that as an after effect of these experiences. Well, you know, I'm wondering, should we try a video or is that, is that? Yeah, sure. You have a couple of video clips you're going to play. And these are people who have had shared death experiences and they are talked about in your book. Maybe I'll do it right now. Hopefully the video works out well, but this is Amelia. And Amelia is going to be sharing a story, a really sad story because her 10-year-old son is diagnosed with cancer. And they go through a three-year cancer journey trying, you know, as most people do to try and stay alive. And eventually, Amelia is going to be talking about this scene where she is in bed with her now 13 year old son, Tom, as he's dying. This is just this she'll give context, but just moments before he dies, this is what she experiences. And this so is that. the one who, when he was young, he kept saying, Mommy, I'm going to die before you do. I'm going to live a very short life and stuff like that. Exactly, Rick. Yeah. yeah. He had a sense that he was going to predecease his parents and he would be jumping up and down in his bed, actually, not the least bit concerned about this. He was a lady. He'd say, be singing, mommy, I'm going to die before you. Mommy, I die before you, which for Amelia is like, what? And, you know, yeah. thought, thought the kid was playing. But, you know, and this is another thing we see in, in my research on end of life experiences is that pre-death premonitions are far more prevalent than we know. We just have this habit of discounting them. And this um, kid obviously had it years before, and it was before he was ever diagnosed with any illness. He was perfectly healthy, but he just knew it. Correct. Yes. All right. Let's see if we can do this. Tom was sleeping. He'd moved downstairs. So he was sleeping on a sort of hospital bed and I was snuggled up next to him. He was just breathing very, very gently, just a very gentle breath. So I had my head right next to him to feel his breath. And I close my eyes. And then it's hard if you close your eyes and you try and imagine something. Like if I close my eyes now and I try and imagine the sea, 
I have to conjure it up. I can do it. Like you, but you're using something in your brain. You're using a cognitive thing, aren't you? So if you close your eyes now and try and imagine something, you're using a bit of your brain to think I'm going to see the sea and you go to somewhere that you've seen and then you see yourself. But you have to, you can almost feel your brain working, I can, to do that. To, but this wasn't like that. I closed my eyes and it was there. So it was like closing your eyes and as you close your eyes, simultaneously somebody switches on a video. But it was just there. I didn't ask for it to come there. It didn't expect it to be there. I certainly wasn't thinking about anything spiritual. I wasn't praying or anything. I was just utterly focused on Tom's breathing. And so I just closed my eyes and there instantaneously, immediately was this video like a scene so clearly that I can remember it so clearly now and it was a woman walking towards what I thought was me I didn't think of Tom because I wasn't really thinking of Tom when I was watching her I completely wasn't thinking about Tom which is why when I came out of it I thought Tom what was I doing you know because I just saw her and I just remember watching her like I watched a film and I thought she's a beautiful young woman she's so beautiful and I remember and I remember thinking actually I must remember this I must remember this I must remember that she's beautiful and she had a pale face and a sort of slightly pointy chin so her face was like a heart very pronounced cheekbones she wasn't anybody I recognize although I wish I wish I could say I think it was like hard she had dark hair that was sort of like women wore in the 70s she was wearing a gown and it was one that kind of crossed over and it had like a tie you know a proper gown it was like in white and I think she might have been holding something in her hand but that I just I couldn't remember at the time I was like I wish I'd looked harder I just wonder if she was holding something the main thing I remember thinking about her is gosh she needs to get somewhere she's urgent she's purposeful and I remember thinking, but she's not running. She's not late. She, it's not like she's like I'm sometimes late for a meeting, like out of breath. Or it was just that she had a look in her eyes like I must be I must be there at this time. But it was sort of somehow really important to me that I knew that she had to be at a certain place at a certain time and that she was going to make sure that she got there. And then I looked what she was walking through and it was a tunnel find it really difficult to describe that tunnel because it was dark but there was light shining through it and it wasn't like if I looked at the walls of that tunnel it wasn't brick or cement it was like air but it was solid so the only way I can kind of think of comparing it to would be like a cloud when you see a cloud looks quite solid a dark storm cloud but you can see the sun behind the cloud trying to break through. I knew there was a white light outside the tunnel. Out of the corner of my eye, I could almost see this incredibly intense white light. And I knew that white light was really good. And I knew when I looked at the dark tunnel, I thought, oh, it's a dark tunnel. But I knew everything was okay because there was this intense white light outside it and coming through it. And she was just coming closer and closer to us. And I, I think I opened my eyes and it all just disappeared. Good. I have another one after this too that's quite interesting. But what I really love about Amelia's case here is, and this for all the spiritual folks who have meditation, mindfulness practices, 
She says, I wasn't praying, I wasn't doing anything, but she did say something else that is really important. And I think this is an enabler of these experiences. And she says, I was focused on Tom's breathing. So when you focus, we know this from you know, spiritual traditions. I'm a Vipassana meditator. I've been focusing on my breath for you know, almost three decades. And you know, that brings us into ourselves. It calm, you know, it quiets our mind and makes us more receptive to phenomena around us. So she begins with this, and then this beautiful young woman appears. And this woman seems to have some urgency and some sense that she needs to do something here. So this is this role we often see of this being showing up that is, I call it the conductor, the one who is in charge of facilitating, in this case, Tom's transition from his human body into this next dimension. Also, I don't know if she got to it in this particular video, but she talks about heading towards a light and a tunnel and all that. This is common as well. This whole thing about this beautiful being being in a hurry. This was the being that was coming to meet Tom when he crossed over, and she was just sort of tuning into that being. That's exactly right. Obviously, this is condensed video, but what Amelia is getting is that this beautiful woman has come to get Tom. Yeah. And what a beautiful experience it is for Amelia to know that, yeah, she's losing her son. But yet there's this beautiful woman that's there to receive her son. Now, something else happens. Amelia's sister walked into the room, Charmin, right at the time of Tom's death. And she reports seeing Tom rising out of his body. This is another phenomenon we see, which is often called soul spirit leaving the body. That's the way we identify it when we're coding the research. We see this in about, I think, 12% of our cases. Not a lot, but when you see it, it's so profound that you can see some often described as a ghostly or translucent figure of the body leaving, typically at the chest or, you know, heart chakra, uh, throat chakra, crown, third eye. That's where it seems to elevate out. And it gives the experiencer the sense of, oh, that person, their soul, spirit, consciousness is leaving and they're observing the process. So let's do one more because it's, um, it's a really a good one, too. This is going to be Mark. Now, Mark's case is with his father dying. Now, Mark is remote. Mark happens to be in New Jersey, and he is reclining in the passenger seat after a, a long week in the wilderness, he knows his father's in a hospital, but he doesn't know that his father's dying. He knew he had pancreatic cancer. And by this point, my dad's in the hospital. And, uh, um, and so I, we're, we're, you know, I've been out in the woods for, for two weeks, you know, and uh, I was driving back up to the farm that, that we, that, that I lived at with my friend, Brian Gooding. And, um, I was super tired, you know, I hadn't slept much in two weeks. And so I just put the seat back in the chair. And, and as soon as I did that, I was like, you know, I, I just, I could feel my father. I was like, I need to check in on him. So I sent myself, I sent my spirit to, to the hospital where I knew he was. And I get there and he was just a wraith of a man. And I, I remember going to him at his bedside and speaking to him and saying, you know, dad, it's like, why don't you just let go? Mom's going to be all right. All us kids are going to be all right. You know, you can go. Like, there's nothing holding you here anymore. And he looks at me, 
And, you know, there's no surprise in his face that I was actually there talking to him. But the puzzlement was in his face was he said, I don't know how. He says, I don't know how. And in the philosophy one class that I took with Tom, at the very end of the class, he walked us through a particular meditation. The only time you are allowed to use this particular meditation again is if it is life and death. And what you do is you bring that person to the light. I knew right away, as soon as I was there with my dad, that that's exactly what I needed to do. And I, and I picked him up and he was as light as a feather, you know, like there's almost nothing to him. I started that meditation, you know, walking down this particular trail and at a certain point turn and step up these stairs and, and walking towards the light. And as after I climbed these stairs, his ethereal body was becoming stronger and stronger to the point where like I, I was able to set him down and he walked with me. So we're walking side by side and I took him to the light. As we got close, my father and my grandmother had a really, really close and beautiful and amazing magical relationship. And she passed away in 1978. As we got close to the, to the light, you know, there's like a doorway where the, the numinosity of the light coming out of there was just, um, was unbelievable. And my grandmother steps out of that light and she's standing there. The look of joy on his face when, when he saw my grandmother was just like a look I hadn't seen in his face in, in years and years and years. And they, he just went and hugged her and hugged her. And my uncle came out of the light at that point. I had one uncle that had passed at that point. And he joined the fray and the three of them were just, just again, the, the joy was just unbelievable. You know, none of them touched me. They were very clearly that I wasn't part of that group. My job was done. Like I brought my dad there and now like they had it. It was really how it felt. And they didn't speak to me either. And, um, and then my dad, he just turns and looks at me and it's just this huge smile on his face. And he just said, I didn't know that it was this easy. And then the three of them turn and walk into the light. The next thing I come, I come to and I'm in the seat of my friend Brian's truck and we're just pulling into the farmyard. And I was exhausted and also very feeling incredibly emotional from this, from this experience I just had with my father. And I said, I, I got to go to bed. So I went to bed. I woke the next morning and uh, the phone rang and it was for me. And I answered the phone and I said, it was my brother. And he said, you know, dad passed away. And I said, yeah, I know. Interesting. It seems like it was making him emotional to talk about it. Yes. Yes. And, you know, Mark is a spiritual, he has a spiritual practice more in the Native American tradition, but quite articulate about what he saw, how he was called there to help his father and heading towards the light. Then, as I said before, that it's common to see the deceased relatives as well. It's cool that he played an active role in ushering his father. I guess usually people have a more passive role where they're just observing this, the situation, but he actually got to be helpful there. Yeah, great. Rick, uh, let me talk about that because there are really four types or modes of participation for a shared death experiencer. The first one is a sensing remotely. So the experience that you had with your father would fit into that category. 
you sense or feel something. It starts with, could be, you know, uncomfortableness, nausea, then all of a sudden, but it heads into other feelings, usually comfortable, peaceful, blissful even. So that's kind of what we have in the sensing realm. We also have a type of mode of experience we call the in the sensing at a distance type, where if the death is a traumatic death, the person will feel some of that. Well, let me just give an example to illustrate this perfectly. Sarah wakes up in the morning early and she's sweating. She has a fever. She starts vomiting. Her family says, what's going on? She goes, I don't know. She goes, we're taking you to the ER. Like she goes, yeah, okay. I get, yeah. Let me get my stuff. Let me get ready. She's getting ready. And then she starts feeling a little better. She goes, Hey, wait a minute. This seems to be passing. And then she gets a call a half an hour later and it's her sister. And her sister says to her, Sarah, I have very sad news. Um, your niece died this morning of a drug overdose, accidental drug overdose. At first you kind of wonder, you know, could this, be made up? What's the connection here? But like I said, the pattern is really clear to us who do the research for cardiac arrest with loved ones. There's often a, a sense of a heart attack type sensations and drug overdose we see. And we see a lot of other ones too, around traumatic deaths, around drownings as well. It's kind of a <gasps> difficult breathing. This is what we call a sympathetic shared death experience. And it's in that sensory, that first type of shared death experience. The second mode of participation for a shared experiencer is what we call witnessing phenomena, observing or witnessing death-related phenomena. This is the most common. It's about 85% of our cases. None of these are, these are all, they're not exclusive. You can be in more than one category here. But this is basically seeing what we call the near-death phenomena. It's the seeing the deceased relatives. It's the light. It's the life review. It's being out of your body. It can be, oh, the unity consciousness, if you will, expansive consciousness, sublime feelings. This is the most common that you actually witness and experience with that person who's transitioning. The third mode of participation is what we call accompanying. And this is when you actually meet the dying in this space, this afterlife space, and you progress along this journey with them. Usually it's a sense of heading upward. Mark has this accompanying for sure, but he also has the fourth type of mode of participation, which is called assisting. And that is he gets called in, it appears that he's called in, to assist the dying, to orient the dying. And Mark does it so beautifully describes this because what we see in this type of experience is the shared death experiencer comes into the space sees the dying, reminds them that they're dying, and then orients them. And when they orient them, it's almost always orienting them to the light. Then you begin this journey upward to the light. And in Mark's case, common with most of these assisted type SDEs, is that you see deceased relatives or elevated beings, and they take over. It's like a handoff that you, the loved one, are giving to these guides or family members in the next dimension. So that's it. That's kind of the four types that we see. It's interesting. And how about some of these assisters on the other side? How much more can you say about them from your experience? The conductor or the guardian angel? Yeah, this is the front 
edge, if you will, the forward edge of our research. I'm fascinated by the conductor. The conductor can appear in a variety of different ways. It can be seen in the way that Amelia's, the beautiful woman, appeared as one who's clearly there with a sense of intention. And as Amelia used the word urgency, we see that quite a bit. Sometimes the conductor is not seen. It's just felt. There was an experience, you know, I actually had this with my father. I'll share this. I go into it in much greater detail in my book. But before he dies, I am there with my family around the bed. And all of a sudden, I find myself in this other space where I see some family members. I see my grandmother and I see my aunt. And I also see this stairway of light coming down. And I'm asking, why isn't that light connecting to him to take him up? And I'm, I'm acting like I know what's going on here. But to me, that light was the bridge that my father was going to walk up. Now, I had seen it before in other shared death experiences myself, so I knew something about this. But I'm wondering, why is the light just stopping short of my father? Why won't you take him? And both my aunt and my grandmother avert their eyes, their attention in a certain way, and point me in the direction up above my father's body, out in front of them, into the darkness. And I move my attention and I connect it with where their eyes have directed me. And I immediately feel that connection in my heart space. And I start, I go, I feel the force of this being, whatever that is. And I start weeping and I just go, that's the conductor. What they're telling me is he's in charge. I use he because that's what it felt like to me. It's not always a he, I'll be sure. Like Amelia didn't have a he with that. So the gender is, you know, it's not that important here, but it was a he in my father's case. And it was so powerful. I got the sense that, oh, I took comfort in the fact that, okay, I get it. There is something much greater going on here. And sometime later, you know, a matter of minutes, really, my father died. But there was something going on that the conductor was organizing. I don't understand how that all works. But in my mind, there is this force, which I've identified as the conductor, that's coordinating this great event of human death. Have you ever looked up the statistics of how many people die in the world every minute, for instance? That's a great one. I don't know. You don't look, did you look it up? No, I just wondered. Maybe Irene could look it up. I'm just thinking there must be a lot of conductors, which is not unusual. I mean, there are a lot of trains yeah. in the world and conductors on those. In a way, it's kind of a busy place on the other side with all kinds of comings and goings, you know, people getting born, people dying. Yeah. And, and there's this whole kind of operation to keep it all coordinated. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes we'll see the experiencers will tell us that there are large welcoming parties, almost like coming into a coliseum or a big theater. So it seems like for my own simple mindedness, that this death, human death and the arrival of a soul spirit consciousness from the human realm is kind of an event. 106 people. Point six. I hate to be that 0.6 of a person. It's like how many people fall off the Grand Canyon every year? Well, two and a half. <laughs> so about 106 people a minute. So that's almost two every second. Another thing says 120. Oh, another thing says 120. It's just about two every second. Yeah. It's fascinating. And like I said, I, I get the sense that the arrival of a soul spirit from the human realm 
is an event. It's a big thing. It's a coming home. Yeah. And maybe it's no different than the other side, the birth of a child and how communities and families get all excited for the birth of a child. You know, I think this fits with more of the Eastern traditions understanding of our cycling through lives. Yeah. Imagine if you put yourself in their shoes, if this person whom you loved uh, and you haven't seen in 20 or 30 years is going to show up, you'd want to have a big welcoming party, put up some banners and ribbons and balloons. And it's like, oh boy. Yeah. And saying that, want to be careful that the time-space continuum either doesn't exist or is completely different up there. So just got to be, want to be real mindful of that. Don't want to anthropomorphize too much here. Right. You must have listened to and read a whole lot of different other sources of information related to this, you know, all the near-death experience books that are out there and, you know, out-of-body experience books and talk to a bunch of people. I know you did an interview with Eben Alexander. There's uh, Michael Newton's books. Have you sort of made a study of this and really kind of explored all the literature? Yes, I've done a pretty exhaustive study of the literature. And the good news is that most of the literature points to a similar understanding of this transition at the end of life. And we've basically talked about it here. Evan and I, we've talked with some frequency about our experiences, both NDEs and the my experience of SDEs. And we're like, you know, we, we just kind of feel like, well, yeah, of course, that's what happens in the life. It's different and it manifests in different ways. You bring your mind with you. So whatever your mind is in the state of your mind, obviously creates some of that reality you step into. But generally, it all seems to add up. One of the things we're trying to figure out, and there's really great research done by Gregory Shushin about the NDEs and cultural experiences. That's something I'm really interested in. When I lived in Central and South America, I lived in Guatemala and Peru and worked with indigenous cultures. And I had conversations with the shamans, the religious leaders, And one of the things that made sense to me was, the way I understood them, was that they're far more adept and comfortable as a practice with journeying all the time. They're journeying all the time. But it's a different type of journey in the sense that they journey and come back. They journey and come back. And of course, there are shamans that specialize in being psychopomps, those who help the people on this side transition into the next dimension. Shamans in most of these villages, that's one of their roles, one of their many roles, to, to escort the dying into their next incarnation, if you will. I think we are very limited in the West in understanding the shared death experience and the near-death experience because of our material view, our fiscalist kind of way of looking at the nature of reality. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that the um, inadequacy of the materialist, physicalist paradigm is becoming more and more painfully obvious and things are crumbling more and more around us. It's it's like if we're not going to shift the paradigm voluntarily, we're going to be compelled to shift it because it's just not working. No, it's not adding up. And uh, as more and more research comes out, like like the shared death experience research, You can discount the near-death experience, some will try and discount it, for being a, what they call a fear-death experience. So a physiological response to a body under stress that creates all these chemicals in your brain that replicates in some predictable pattern in what 
is a near-death experience. Well, you throw that completely out with the shared death experience, because as your case indicates, you don't even know your father's dying. There's no stress in you. There's no physiological process happening for you. And you're having a shared death experience. And we see this happen all the time. It, it, it shared death experiences that, you know, like I said, two thirds happen remotely and they can be full blown experiences that are replicate the NDE. There's no stress here. There is no physiological response to harm to the body. Yeah. And both with these remote shared death experiences and with out-of-body experiences often had by people who are under anesthesia or in a coma or some such thing, there's all kinds of verifiable evidence. They see things in other parts of the building or up on the roof of the building and report it later on. There's no way they could have known those things. So you know, I think people who are skeptical of this kind of stuff just brush that off and don't want to think about it. But if you're open-minded enough to listen to it, you realize that this is pretty solid verification. And obviously you can't easily set up a controlled experiment where you're going to make this happen because nobody wants to go into a coma voluntarily. And even if they did, they wouldn't necessarily have the experience. But given the numbers of people who have these things, they're happening all the time around the world and being reported in many cases. Agreed. It's very difficult to research these type of experiences. I mean, I've, I've had, you know... Some people in the medical sciences say, well, you know, we're really not ever going to be able to validate this or verify it unless we can do, you know, these type of controlled studies. Like, well, there's no way that's ever going to pass an eternal review board. But I think a lot of this is just resistance to even looking at this. Yeah. The Galileo effect. Yes. We won't look through your telescope because it violates what you say we would see if we looked violates our religious philosophy. And so we're not going to look. You know, another thing is that people are so busy and people in scientific fields are so siloed into very narrow niches of of study and endeavor, and they just don't have the time and the bandwidth. And also there very often would be professional or economic consequences if they were to openly take these kinds of things seriously. And so they just, uh, I'm not going to deal with it. I don't need the trouble. I'm busy enough. Absolutely. There is not the interest to take these experiences up. I didn't really have the choice. And I mean, I did have the choice, but I mean, I had so many of them and I didn't even want to go into this field. Honestly, I resisted uh, for so long. Actually, the final piece of my story would be that it wasn't until I met Raymond Moody in 2009 at a conference and he was talking about these, the shared death experience. I thought he was going to talk about the near death experience. I didn't even know the shared death experience existed. He's talking about the shared death experience and defining it the way that I have already, basically similar to the NDE, except it's by a caregiver loved one who's healthy in mind and body. And so when I heard this, you know, we finally had a label for it and and I took it up. But, you know, I'm glad I did. But I can tell you there is a great deal of resistance to what I'm talking about, even in hospice care. Even when hospice nurses and caregivers at the end of life know these experiences happen, there is still a good deal of resistance. I mean, I think that's breaking down and that's the reason I wrote the book and do the research. I mean, you know, we, our research is now in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. That is one of the leading journals in the world on end-of-life care. So the literature's out there and our hope is that more and more people will take this and 
whether you're working in the field or you're just a consumer, that means you're dying or you're a caregiver loved one, that you'll, you will demand that your healthcare providers know that you want to have this experience and know that you want to do the things to facilitate it. I like science. I was never good at it in school, but I really enjoy watching science documentaries and listening to science podcasts and things like that. So I really respect it. And I'm kind of fascinated with the ability of science or inability to deal with spirituality, because I think that spirituality and the kinds of things you're talking about here, I mean, if, if science really wants to understand how the universe works, then it has to take these things into consideration. And if the scientific method were absolutely purely applied by scientists, these things would be taking, getting taken into consideration. But scientists are human beings, and as such, they fall short of you know, pure science when they do science because they bring their biases into it, which is what science is supposed to circumvent. There's so much blindness and refusal to look at things and politics and economic motivations, and the whole thing gets muddied. And on the other hand, I think science can help spirituality a lot because spirituality can get very ungrounded and woo-woo and fly off into flights of fancy. And if we bring a bit of an empirical attitude to it and um, you know, insist that what we believe have some kind of experiential verification of some sort that it can actually be experienced and not just believed, then in that sense, a scientific attitude will help spirituality. So I, I think maybe we'll as a culture evolved toward a time when we don't differentiate the two, they merge into a collaborative, cooperative venture that somehow takes full advantage of both objective and subjective means of gaining knowledge. I love what you're saying. And I wish science would be doing more of that the way it's practiced. I mean, I love skeptics of the work I'm doing. I love when people question, well, couldn't it be hallucinations or stress-induced something or other? I love those conversations. But let's not discount these experiences because for reasons of your science, for your beliefs. And I think there's a really important reason for this. And that is that these experiences are so healing to people that they come back and they realize that their loved one is alive and well in a benevolent afterlife. And that is super important because they know that everyone is, that this dying person is transitions in a good place. And they say they'll see them again, which is also a wonderful experience that you know that your relationship will continue at some point. And their fear of death is alleviated. So there's so many positives that we need to make space for these experiences. Yeah, there's a section towards the end of your book, the last couple of chapters, where you talk about the kind of things you just said, the sort of the implications or benefits of opening up to this perspective. And I want to make sure we spend adequate time covering some of those points. And hopefully you'll just do that off the top of your head, because I don't even remember yeah. what all the specific points were. But I remember when I listened to them, those chapters, I thought, oh, we got to really cover some of this stuff. A few questions came in. This one is from Suki John, or maybe John Suki in London. And his question is, or her question, is it possible to find out what you're here to accomplish? In other words, like you said, when you're 17, I got to go back. I haven't accomplished what I'm supposed to do. How can a person find out what it is they're supposed to do? That is a great question. And that was one of the next things I was going to say. So very timely. 
Yeah, experiencers report that they have a sense for what the human life is about generally. They see it as sitting inside the larger context of their existence. And because of this, they realize there's a purpose for their human life and they really get about living it. So we see with experiencers that they often change primary relationships or at least work to improve them a certain way. We see them living more into their integrity, becoming more spiritual and less materialistic. Their values about compassion and care and love and honesty and truth-telling and right relationship, all this gets heightened as a result of their shared death experience. By the way, this is analogous to the near-death experience as well. So yes, great question. Huge benefit. And I suppose a follow-up question that be, well, I haven't had a shared death experience and I don't want to have a near-death experience. How can I find my life's purpose without having to go to those extremes? Well, I mean, I think you're kind of one of the experts on that, Rick. You have all these wonderful leaders in spirituality and consciousness. I think that's the path there. And I'll, I'll double down on that and say that, as I've said before, most of these experiencers in our research, and I'm one of them, I have turned increasingly, as we, as we do from this experience, into spiritual practice because that's where we can reconnect with the truths that we found on, and this journey to the other side. I would also refer Suki to uh, my interview with Stephen Cope. He wrote a whole book about finding your dharma. And he actually has a sequel to that book coming out or has come out. And there are, of course, many other people I've interviewed who might touch on this, but that would be one that's specifically related to that point. Here's one from Gita Shamana in London, another person from London. Question is, I spoke to my father five days before he died. I was in London and he was in India. As our call was coming to an end, we were suddenly enveloped by deep stillness. I experienced that profound stillness for about three minutes, after which we said goodbye. We didn't get to speak again, and my very last interaction with him was this stillness. Is this a shared death experience? Beautiful question, Gita. So this is great because what we find is one quarter, about 24% of our shared death experiences happen minutes, hours, and in some cases, a day or two before or after the actual physical death. So you might be saying, well, why wouldn't that be another non-ordinary end-of-life experience? Well, because the pattern is really discernible. And that feeling that you're experiencing there, Gita, that euphoria, that peace, that is part of the shared death experience. I would suggest that I'd have to learn a little bit more, but that would fit in what we see. Definitely. And it's similar to yours, Rick, as well. Remote and having those feelings of bliss and euphoria. Yeah, in her case, it was five days beforehand. But in my case, it was kind of simultaneous, but unbeknownst to me. Like you said a minute ago, time isn't linear on the other side. And I don't think it's linear on this side either. It just seems to be because we're wired to make it seem because it makes it easier to live life, (laughs) makes it easier to schedule plane flights and things. There must have been something going on with her and her father that they both tuned into this thing. She didn't give us details, but he might not have even known he was about to die. And yet they both had this experience. Yes, I would say concur with that completely. I would just encourage her to really lean into that experience and know that that was a shared honoring of her father's imminent transition. Here's another Indian person, but this one is in Dallas. Srinath is this person's name. How come 
only some people feel the near-death experience, and we could also say shared-death experience, while most of us do not. That is a mystery. And we can talk a little bit about what we've learned in the research about who has these experiences and who doesn't. What we can tell is that mindfulness practices help. That's why I highlighted that with Amelia's case and that sense that she was really breathing with Tom as he was dying. So there is something about being in these flow states, these more receptive states, when you're attuning to the dying and to the what's going on around the dying, that you seem to facilitate these experiences. Now, that being said, I worked in Zen hospice and we were working all the time with this Buddhist practices of being attuned and present. And I didn't hear of anyone else who had these experiences. So I don't, I can't say that that's going to guarantee it. I will say this, that I developed methods to enable the SDE because there was such a demand to know how to have this. And just so you know, the three things I think matter most is one is you need to know that these experiences happen. And not just a shared death experience, but a whole host of other end-of-life experiences. And when you know that they happen, that means you'll be more receptive to them when they come. Said differently, you won't distract yourself or push yourself away if all of a sudden you feel a shift in the time-space continuum in the room, or light starts coming in in a different way, or you start feeling pressure and elevation, a sense of pulling gravitationally on your chest upward, rather than go, oh, what's that? And contract, you'll say, oh. And you'll go into it and then you'll have the experience. So first is awareness of the experience, normalize them. Second would be, it really helps to do our spiritual, psycho-emotional work, if you will, address any unfinished business in our lives, both intrapersonally and interpersonally. So we do in our trainings, life reviews and look at regrets and do reconciliation practices, forgiveness practices that really cultivates the soul for this journey. And then we really step into the fact that death and dying is going to happen. How to say goodbye. You practice saying goodbye. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. And then the last thing is I teach protocols, which too long for this interview and really takes some time when we're teaching them in in the trainings. And that is teach the person who's dying that when they're going through this transition, leaving their human body, I have methods that allow that person to remember to, in a certain sense, turn around and call back to their surviving loved ones, their caregivers and loved ones, and invite them into that space where they are. So there's a whole series of exercises, not a whole series, but a couple practices that we do to enable that. And I will say, thankfully, that this is a pathway program, if you're interested in it's on our website, but it it really allows people, empowers them to know that there are things they can do if they really want to have this experience. And in the cases when they don't have it, what we've heard over and over again is they end up having other mystical experiences at the end of life. So they'll often say, you know, I didn't have the shared death experience, but a day later, I had a dream where my father was right there next to me and he was telling me he was okay and he thanked me. I'm like, okay, so you didn't have the SDE, but you had a post-death visitation or vision. So all this preparation, I always say the real goal is to prepare for a conscious, connected, and loving end-of-life experience. That enables the mystical experiences, the end of life. One thing that comes to mind that I feel like I ought to say, because it came to mind, is that I interviewed this guy some years ago who later on 
had an accident where he slipped on some rocks and injured his Cossacks or something, you know, so he was experiencing a lot of pain. And he ended up committing suicide. And he had a rather cavalier attitude toward it. He was fully convinced that we don't die. And he left a suicide note saying, okay, well, look for a kid who has such and such markings on his body or something that might be me coming back. Mm -hmm. And he had it all planned out. I just want to make the point that in my opinion, and let's see what you think, just because we believe that we don't die when the body dies, shouldn't make us feel like it's no big deal if we off ourselves. We should probably, unless there's severe suffering, and I do believe that maybe these euthanasia programs that they have in Switzerland and even some U.S. states are a wise thing in some cases, but it should kind of be a last resort because we'll die when we're meant to, perhaps. I don't know if I'm being politically incorrect here, but we shouldn't necessarily be too quick to take it into our own hands. I agree with what you're saying. I don't think anybody who's having these experiences, whether it's the near-death experience or the shared death experience, is saying that because of that experience, they can choose to end their life any sooner than it would under natural circumstances. I will say that the experiencers are more at peace with death and dying, so they're probably not going to take on extraordinary means at the end of life. You know, if they've got cancer and the doctor says, well, you know, there's not much more we can do. I could give you chemo or radiation to keep it at bay. I think most of the experiences will say, you know what? I'm just going to let my life go. It's natural course. Thank you very much. I'm not afraid of dying. I now want to die on my own terms and gather up the people I love in my life and just do it the right way or however they want to die. I think there's that middle path there, you know, not clinging to life, yet not clinging to the afterlife. Yeah. Okay, good. Here's a question from Leslie Mack in Massachusetts. Do you know anything about ancestors who are well versus not well? I don't completely understand how to navigate this issue when engaging in mediumship work. I don't know which people on the other side would be wise guides. I can tell you that in my research, we don't see beings that appear on the other side, either deceased relatives, elevated beings, whatever, that are negative. In other words, they're not there to help assist positively in the transition. I don't see that. So I would say that's more of a question for somebody, either a shaman who can communicate with the other side or a medium. There are ways to get in touch. I'm a big fan of quality mediumship. Yeah, Leslie, my guest last week, Lauren Robertson, might be able to answer your question and you can easily get in touch with her through Facebook. She'd be happy to answer your question. This is from Prachi Dixit in Torrance, California. I know of someone who actually announced their date and time of death and passed at that moment, healthy. Is it possible for people to be that spiritually advanced? Wow, that is a great question. And that's out of my purview. I, Rick, I'd say that's from your understanding and study of great spiritual masters. I have heard of that, being able to have some sense of when you're going to die. I mean, the Dalai Lama has said that the fruit of a good spiritual meditation practice is knowing about two years in advance that you're going to die, not the specific time and date. But he has said that monks will have a good sense of precognitive insight as to their time is coming. Yeah, I had a really dear friend um, whom I taught to meditate, actually, when she was in high school. 
she was living here in, in my town and she knew she was going to die. She made arrangements with a, a friend of hers to have some money put away and made other sorts of arrangements. And one day she was driving to the next town to go teach at the college there. And it was starting to snow and she crossed a bridge and the bridge was icy and she lost control and went head on into a big truck. Um, but she just knew it to the extent that she was actually making arrangements. So she's a young mother. She must not have been more than 30 years old. She had had a child a month before or very previously, but she just saw it coming. Yeah. I just want to invite your viewers, listeners, if they have questions about end-of-life experiences and they're wondering what type they are, we have a whole set of resources on the sharecrossing.com website that people can look at. They can even see videos similar to what I showed here today of other shared death experiences. But like any of this stuff, pre-death premonitions, pre-death visions and visitations, post-death visions, visitations, synchronicities. No one's asked about synchronicities, but there are amazing synchronicities that happen at and around the time of death, like clock stopping at the time of death and dogs howling and birds doing interesting behaviors. I used to be so reticent to explore this stuff because it seems so woo-woo. And yet, when we do the research, we find that, now you're telling me that this person's birthday was uh, March 4th, and you see when they died on that clock, and every clock in your house, every oven, every digital display said three, four on it? You go, yeah. How does that happen? You just hear these stories, and they're mind benders. You know, I always say, you know, we're energetic bodies, beings, and I think the way that our deceased loved ones can communicate with us is often through energetic means. They can work with electricity and such. It's a bit of a stretch, but I think it works. And I've seen hundreds and hundreds of cases that the best, easiest explanation is that this is some sort of communication from across the veil. Yeah. Mark Twain was born when Halley's Comet was here. I think he predicted that he was going to die when Halley's Comet came back again, and he did. Wow. Yeah, the mystery is so important. I mean, I just think at the end of the day, I mean, I, I, don't, I hope I don't come off as sounding like it's like this or that. I mean, I have this data. I have a point. I think that's, there's a profound pattern here that I'm presenting to the world in a, in a way that I think is helpful. I want people to know this. But at the end of the day, it's a mystery. I mean, it is a, just a great mystery here. And to say this as well, everything that I'm picking up in our research is right on the initial stages of the afterlife. I can't say too much more beyond that. You mentioned Michael Newton's work, which I've studied greatly, and I am a, actually a, a regression therapist as well. So I've gone back into the space between lives with people. And there's a great deal of patterning there that suggests some form and structure to the space between lives. It can be an afterlife, but space in between lives. It's compelling, but it's still a mystery. I think we just have to be so careful about what we claim to be truth. Yeah, well, you don't come across as dogmatic. I think we both say, well, yeah, well, we're really confident that you continue after you die, but we're not saying you better believe this or you're going to hell or something. Yeah. It's just our conviction based upon everything we've learned. Did you watch my interview with Father Nathan Castle? Oh, I know Father Nathan Castle, but I didn't see the interview. Yeah, about a month ago or so. He was really interesting. Just for the benefit of the listeners, he was this Catholic priest who began to have experiences of helping people who had died, perhaps years before in many cases, but who were kind of stuck. He helps them move on. He kind of 
gets them through a certain stage and then the conductor comes or somebody comes and say, okay, you can come now. So that's a fascinating thing related to what we're talking about here today. Yeah. And spiritualism has a whole form in cosmology for that transition. And if you're quote unquote stuck in your transition, there are people who are types of mediums called transport mediums. This is more spiritism than spiritualism, but it all comes from that Alan Kardec tradition out of Europe. There's a lot of models and paradigms that look at this and provide support and methods for helping people in their transition. Here's a question from my friend Inari Kiuru in Melbourne, Australia. She asks, what key advice would you give to lay people who are about to start or in the very beginning of their death midwife training. Um, parentheses, she said, this is a volunteer hospice or home role supporting a person passing away as well and as peacefully as possible. So what advice would you give to lay people who are interested in becoming a death midwife? I appreciate that question. And I First of all, really see that death midwifery or death doulas, as they're often called now increasingly, is a role that's growing as a profession and it's much needed. And the what I would say to anyone who wants to do that is there are a number of great training institutes around. Get good training, but do it in a few different ways. Make sure you get solid understanding for the physical medical process of a body breaking down. Study the psychological and spiritual aspects of dying. Increasingly, there are schools that are sprouting up grassroots to offer this. If she has questions, you can reach out to me on my sharecrossing.com. Just contact us and I have some referrals to people to do that. But the most important thing is to really be curious about what's happening. I think if you come in with an open heart and a curiosity about helping, when I train people in my trainings, what I say, the you know, first thing you do is Stop at that door before you go into that room and commit yourself to service to them. Realize that your role when you walk in there is to attune to what the dying and their caregiver and the caregiver loved ones, because the family is suffering too when someone's dying, attune to the needs of them and make yourself available. It's such a wonderful thing just to give yourself over in service. It's really easy, actually, if you just come in without an agenda and, and attune to the dying in that deepest, most authentic, and I say spiritual way, feel and sense into them and ask, what do they need? Ask them and ask the other beings that are often present, the conductor, if you will, and others that are there to help this beautiful transition. Nice answer. So I mentioned earlier that there were some philosophical or cultural or broad picture kind of points towards the end of your book. I think we've covered some of them, but are, are there some things along those lines that we haven't covered yet? I think actually, Rick, at the beginning, we talked about the limitations of the, the current medical establishment in dealing with end of life. And I really want to be clear is that there's so many good people within that institution, if you will, the palliative and hospice care doctors and nurses in particular. I mean, nurses are just huge in this because they provide most of the care increasingly, I think what we're talking about is what needs to happen. There needs to be a greater understanding for the spiritual aspects of dying. If there's one thing that we need to assert is that, yes, there's a physical body dying, but there's a spirit, a consciousness 
that needs to be tended to. Whether you believe that that goes on or not to an afterlife, what have you, there's a bunch of spiritual, emotional needs that need to be met, and they're not going to be met with medical interventions. They can be met with kindness, compassion, authentic connection, and really dialoguing about end of life more frequently. If there's one thing I would ask your listeners to do is go out after their time with hearing your interview, our interview, and talk to their friends about this. Ask them, have you had these experiences? Are you aware of this? Are you aware of any spiritual experiences at the end of life? What I have found is that most people will be surprised how many people have had profoundly spiritual experiences at the end of a life as a caregiver, a loved one, and don't share it. They just don't share it because for some reason, our culture, the modern culture hasn't made space for it. So those are the pieces that I see that need to happen to change the way in which we die in our modern culture. And this will likely not be a top-down change. This will likely be a consumer-driven as patients and caregivers of patients who will demand hopefully lovingly and kindly, that our end-of-life institutions respond to these spiritual needs. And a lot of that goes to that there'll be a lot more dying at home without any medical interventions, just comfort care. I bet you that there are a lot of doctors like Pim von Lommel, who is a Dutch cardiologist that talks a lot about near-death experiences, but a lot of doctors in roles like his don't talk about it because they don't want to be ridiculed by their peers. And it could be one of these things where at a certain point, there'll be a tipping point or a phase transition, and all of a sudden it'll become culturally acceptable a lot quicker than we think, like things have in the United States, gay marriage, for instance, or you know some various things that have just undergone this fairly rapid transition. And you know the way tipping points work or phase transitions, they can be quite sudden. And you don't realize how close you are to them. Like, for instance, when you boil water, you can be just a degree or two beneath the boiling point and it doesn't look like much is happening and just a little bit more heat and all of a sudden it turns to steam. It's, it's boiling. So there could be societal changes like that, too, and the way we understand things, the things we accept, the things we believe. I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm seeing a steady progression to that tipping point. And I think the way it might happen, Rick, is that some major influencers in our culture will speak out in this situation and say, I had the shared death experience. I mean, this was the gift of Eben Alexander to our culture. There had been lots of near-death experiences previous to Eben's, and there was gaining acceptability. But when he wrote his book as a neurosurgeon trained at Harvard, associate professor of neurosurgery at Harvard, actually... And when he told his story, as he says often, and I just had an interview with him a couple of weeks ago, he said, it's not so much me. He had the credentials. He says, but my story resonated with people and they knew that was true. And I just had, I was believable and trustable. And that's what really pushed it forward. And, you know, Anita Morjani then came out after that. And so I think you can look at a similar pattern with the shared death experience, and it can happen a lot quicker because- you don't need to brush with death to have a shared death experience. There are lots of influencers, and I know some of them who've had these experiences, but they're telling me they're still reticent to come out and share. There's a risk to become off as woo-woo or out there in some way, but it will happen sooner than later. Kim Kardashian, if you're listening. Exactly. <laughs> I forget where I heard this metaphor, but it's like 
changing public opinion or there's certain things which they're like a, a big heavy weight or block on a frictionless surface. You can run up against them at full speed, smash your shoulder into them, and, and you're not going to move them much, but you're going to hurt your shoulder. Or you can just start leaning into them and just keep pushing, and they begin to gain momentum. So what you're doing is like that. Maybe what I'm doing is part of that. And a lot of people are doing this. And it's just like we're pushing that big, heavy block, and it's just starting to pick up speed. And you know, eventually, it really gets clipping along. I hope so. I believe what you're talking about in terms of this gentle pushing, cajoling, and you don't know when that force that we're applying in a gentle way, when is it actually going to move the boulder? When is it going to actually start the spin in the wheel that will then take on an inertia of its own? I think it's moving. It's just a question of when will it reach uh, adequate speed? And this boulder we're talking about, it's not only about getting people to accept life after death more commonly, but humanity's very continuation is at stake for a number of reasons. A lot of things have to change in order to avert catastrophe. I kind of feel like the spiritual enterprise, broadly speaking, is the most fundamental and pivotal influence in bringing about that change. And there's just this little race between (laughs) that influence bubbling up enough and all kinds of dire consequences if we don't correct some things. Yeah. And I think, you know, you alluded to this in the beginning, I think it's in everyone's interest for us to change the manner in which we look at end of life. The transformations that come when you embrace the spiritual end of life are really meaningful and they ripple throughout our culture. And death is something that we're all going to experience and our loved ones too. It's a place where we can really know that any type of investment of our time and our study and whatever into learning how to die more consciously is going to yield positive effects for ourselves and for our loved ones and for our culture at large. We need a new paradigm around death and dying. We can't be spending a good deal of, quite frankly, public funds to support people with interventions to prolong life that's not yielding anything. We need to pull back on that and look at more conscious way of dying. Well, that's a good wrap-up point. Thanks. Thank you, Rick. Really yeah. enjoyed our time together. Thank me, you. Me too. I had a lot of fun. Thanks to those who've been listening or watching. We have quite a few interviews scheduled now. If you look on the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com, you'll, you'll see what's coming up. There's a little thing on the right side of each one of them where you can add it to your calendar and get a reminder so that you can catch the live one while we're actually doing the interview and you can send in questions. Okay, thank you. And thank you, William. And let's stay in touch. Thank you, Rick.